Welcome to another episode of the David Crit Projects podcast. My name is Amay Bell and in today's podcast we have Stephen Hobbs, visual artist and director of the public art production organization, The Trinity Session, in conversation with Zivanai Matangi, Mantala Koatse, Tusi Fukani, Sparks Napoli, and Senzo Bongwana, the photographers, filmmakers, and artists that make up the Art My Jersey documentary team, known as the Creative Crew. The Johannesburg Development Agency's Art My Jersey project implements functional public art enhancements and facilities in strategic public places in key nodes along the city's transit corridors. Executed under the oversight and funding of the city's development planning department, the creative crew engages in an ongoing program of workshops, events and installations, exploring creative placemaking through the community participation and co-production. Urban chemistry draws on the interpretive eye of the creative crew as they examine the precarious social conditions and ambiguous spaces found between the more traditionally designated outlines of city-commissioned urban transformation. The exhibition comprises photography, film and public performance works, all of which the creative crew will be speaking about in the podcast, excavating alternative vantage points that explore the tension between social and political rights of access, emerging creative into microeconomies, and the power of the performative to activate space and unearth history and memory. Stephen Hobbs has been instrumental in guiding the curation and implementation of the Art My Jersey program and the Urban Chemistry Exhibition, which will include a series of his own photographic works that reflect on urban defensiveness and what might be perceived as an increasing distrust of public life in neighbourhoods surrounding Johannesburg. The following audio was extracted from a conversation between Stephen Hobbs and the creative crew. The Art My Jersey campaign started two years ago, and it was... um, uh, it's built on the back of public art commissioning process through the city of Johannesburg that looks at creative placemaking in relation to uh, some of the city's key development projects along uh, the development corridors where the new bus rapid transit system is being implemented. And as a creative crew, um, the documentary team has been working in all of the key sites where we've either been working directly with communities involved in conceptualizing and narrating and translating history, memory through an artistic process where the end result would land up as murals or sculptures or urban furniture or landscape design within each of those given areas. I'd be curious to have a response about what that experience has been like, what is the, what is the routine, what's the work about, what is it, what is it like to be integrated integrally involved as a visual documenter of process and uh, artistic outcomes in specific neighborhoods and communities. In fact, I'd actually like to put the question to you, Z. So, um, for me, the whole uh, process documentation has been something that kind of grows you in dynamic ways, because not only are you documenting uh, processes in as far as how we build up from you know the workshop, you know getting the guys into the workshop and actually uh, documenting the process of the workshop all the way to what is translated from the workshop, what comes out of the workshop in artworks, and going on to actually materializing the physical artwork onto whether it's murals or statues or, or whatnot. So it's it's like you are you are documenting and you are being artistic at the same time because 
not only are we tasked to be documenters, but we are also tasked to actually um, be artistic about it. I mean, if I can put this out that some of my photos were used in autocassette to actually, uh, as murals, these were, these were photographs, you know, so it's, you know, when you're taking, okay, yourself as a documenter, that's, that's something I naturally was inclined to do. That's something I knew from way back as documentary photography, but then there was the whole aspect of what else can you do as a photographer to inspire the artworks. So not only am I getting these artists in and documenting them as they are actually um, bringing out the artworks, but I'm also a part of it because as I'm seeing, as I'm documenting, I'm also trying to be creative and saying to myself, okay, I'm also in this here. What can I do and what photos can I take using this environment, using this space, using this facility and, and everything that's happening to also inspire uh, the artworks. So um, that, that for me is like just uh, something exciting. Now, Mantala, <clears throat> when we met you, um, I think the, the things that, that really inspired us in terms of your your skills and your, your, your background was as a performer, as an artist, as a dancer, as a poet, as a writer, as a, as a, as a community facilitator in your own right in Alexandra Township, someone who's an initiator of special programs and projects to bring literacy to the community, to bring um, democracy around public space to the community. Um, you've played a, an instrumental role in helping communities get out of the uncomfortable space of talking about their daily lives as if it was something important to share with a greater community in an artistic way so that we are not reading big texts about things but actually getting people to loosen up and trust that they themselves have their own creative language. I think I'd be really be interested and of course you worked earlier in the year with with your colleague Bash, and I think there was an interesting collaboration there, but I'd like for you to just broadly reflect on what the process, what the responsibility of that process is, what it means to you as an artist, and, and how you think that has enabled, or maybe not, um, a creative process beyond the normal way in which public art sees itself in, in, in the city. And, and of course, you by all means challenge my question. <laughs> Okay, um, as an artist, the creative process means a lot to me because it's actually a challenge like every day, every step of the way. Um, having to deal with not only myself as a, as a person because when I tap into that creative, I don't know what to call it, but when, I, when, I, when I'm a poet or when I'm a performer on stage or when I'm a model modeling for that certain thing, I'm not this mandala. So I feel like I'm a vessel. Like when I when I get to be that advocate, artistic advocate in the community doing the work or writing a poem, like I'm I, I just I become a vessel. So for me it's a challenge because each and every time I have to sort of deal with this, like okay, how am I like how who am I becoming now? And why do I choose to be this person? And how is this person going to carry me? Because sometimes, well, most of the time, I put myself out there um, with the vision of being empty after 
everything is done. And then I come back <laughs> empty yet fulfilled. And then I, I get lost in between and I don't really know how to breathe. But also I encourage people to be emotionally intelligent. So it's a very challenging journey. Like um, I don't know how to explain it. But one thing that I had learned throughout is I think this whole process is teaching me how to be a, more than a performer, more than, uh, more than a poet, more than a writer, more than an art activist. It has actually taught me to be more of an art therapist because everything I do goes back to self-consciousness. I mean, I can't tell people about, I can't inspire people to use their voices to have a certain language to express themselves if I myself do not have it. So in the fearing of being this greater me that I do not know of, that is in demand, you know, more of like a superwoman, you know, in, in all of that process, I still have to, I still have to like keep working on reminding myself that, uh, okay, uh, after this, after you are empty and yet fulfilled, you still have to come back and be a daughter. You still have to come back and be a friend. You still have to come back and be a sister. And and even though you are all of that, you still need to know how to not be weird, even though you are weird. <laughs> so it's a journey. It's yeah, it's a journey. Um, I am learning every day. And to be quite honest, I most most of the time I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just <laughs> I'm just doing it anyways. Yeah. Mantala, tell me more about this word. Okay, is a phrase derived from In English, it means in my sleep, I dreamt of myself sleeping. This work was um, done by myself and Zivanai. We also had some of a few of my friends, Kumzile and Koto. Koto is a stylist, so he styled us for this. It's a series of work based on Bring Back Our Girls. We captured the story in the corridor by. Along the Louis Porter Corridor. Yeah. Church. So Bring Back Our Girls is. So in 2014, uh, the girls in Nigeria were abducted by Boko Haram people and the whole of Africa had a campaign going on and the slogan was bring back our girls and we needed to get our girls back and part of the one of the activism group that I was part of the B girls uh, we had a, a global campaign called one billion rising so it was like a billion people rising to you know get the girls back. So that actually, that was a bit personal to me because at that time I was, um, my work was solely about the girls that are being abducted, uh, specifically in Lesotho and in the Eastern Cape. And yeah, so when I saw that, uh, that board in the Catholic Church, I was inspired to then make that my story and like create a story about it. So we had props like the spade, the Bible, and a hymn book. So the spade was a symbolism of how much I've digged, you know, like, and there was a creative piece written, these hands of mine have, these hands of mine have digged so many holes. It had killed so many people with the spade. 
I have buried so many lives, but there was no flesh. I buried blood. And then I'm asking, how do you bury blood? Because some of these girls, um, their parents probably thought they were dead. In my head, this is what I imagined, what their parents were going through there. They probably imagined their girls dead, and they probably wanted to bury their children, but with no flesh. And these are the stories that every woman goes through, whether you are in the township, in the suburb, in the rural areas. And the hymn, the hymn was what is very close to me. I never used to admit that I'm Christian, but I think I am. So, so the hymn is like one of those um, elements that creates a huge role in healing me in a way to, or that inspires me to heal people through my work. That, that's what the, the hymn book was for, that um, as much as I'm in pain, I still have the courage to heal. As much as we are searching, we still have the courage to fight. We still have uh, the courage to fight because we have faith that one day we will find and we will not go through the same things, we will not speak the same language, we will not fight for the same things, we will rise and we will be complete as women and as, as human beings because I was also imagining it from a perspective of a father losing a child, a girl child, and, and having to go through him, having to go through people going men are trash, and actually excluding him as a man who's also going through trouble with, you know, a girl children. So I was not just looking at it from an angle of uh, women going through this, but human beings going through this. But what inspired the title was, I was with Hoto, the stylist, and somebody sent him to go buy something and when he got back his mind was occupied and he was talking to this one person and the person was like how hot or why aren't you greeting me because in the township we have a tendency of greeting everyone if you see someone you can't just pass the person you need to greet the person but because his mind was occupied he didn't greet the person he just went on so when the when the person asked why aren't you greeting me, he said, Oh, I'm sorry, man. I had a dream and in my dream I was sleeping. So so that was like, whoa, that's actually dope. That's what the the title of our series is gonna be. I had a dream and in my dream I was sleeping. And as I was thinking of the uh, bring back our girls at some point, because then we were in 2018, right? So it was last year. So those girls were found, but some girls were not found. And abduction is still happening and human trafficking is happening and there's just a whole lot of things happening you know um, it's not safe for me as a woman walking in the streets being a human being living breathing just being it's not safe for a man it's basically not safe for anyone and during those times there were also um, cases in Abbott's particularly where um, you, you'd never know when you are safe, you know, like people would mug you in a taxi, like you'd catch a taxi and people would mug you. If you're a man, they take all your uh, things. If you're a woman, they'd rape you. And there was a case where a pregnant woman was raped, you know, so that was like, oh my gosh, I'm having a dream. And then I just woke up. Waking up made me realize that I'm still sleeping. I'm still dreaming. So that's how the series came about. What I want to move on to, another collaboration between Zimanai Matangi and Mantala Kwatse, and the project is titled My Body is a Museum. Now, I think what's interesting about going on from what you were talking about, your inspiration and your empathy around particularly the, the trafficking of young girls, let's understand what this 
photographic intervention or performance intervention has meant to you. And I'd like you to start by just talking about how you've created the work, what you're both doing, what, you're, what it is, and, and then slowly start unpacking some of those more complex challenges that you felt while you were, while you were composing the shots and so forth. All right, so basically the, the project was all about um, highlighting, first and foremost, the corridors. And um, it was all about just getting how to um, get people to start thinking about introducing certain facilities, exercise or whatnot in public spaces. That's just, that was just the initial thought, you know, how do you get people starting to think about, you know, how do... How, how are we supposed to actually incorporate exercise, you know, where people can find a facility where they can exercise and do those type of things in a public space. And the whole thing was just getting Mantala and myself going out to a very public spaces and getting her to um, work out or whatnot while we, while we photograph her. But it was, it was more like a live performance thing because I mean we'll just go to a certain environment we pick out a place on along the corridors or whatnot and then we would say okay Mandala this is what we're gonna do you're gonna start to do your thing and as far as exercise whether it's yoga or just stretching or whatnot we document that so that that was basically the premise of, of the whole initiative although it kind of morphed into other things as we went along the way it was uh, a way of just to try and accommodate whatever we felt would best articulate the original idea without sticking to a set way of doing things. And I think that kind of worked out well. I mean, Mandala can speak more about the experience. I, as a photographer, also have an experience in a, in, in, in a sense because, I mean, Stephen knows that as a photographer, I'm more of a locations photographer, so I like to control my environment before I actually go take photos there. So I know where everything is, I got my people and whatnot. I don't like to think about other things but zoning into my photography when I'm taking photos. But with this initiative, it was more of just going into places where you do not control anything, okay? You're in a public space and some of the public spaces unfortunately are more uh, dodgy or a bit more dangerous than others like when we had to shoot in Alex. So you don't control anything and um, it was a different feel. It was a different feel to being creative as a photographer. It was a different feel to that sense of how do I maintain a sense of safety and still be creative at the same time. But it, it was a lot of adrenaline and it was a lot of fun. But I think Mantala as the body museum, I mean I just took the photos. She was the person that had to stand out there and really perform. And sometimes you couldn't see me as a photographer for some angles I'm hidden and she's right there in public and she's doing things and people don't actually realize that there's photos being taken, you know? So, um, yeah, Mandala, maybe you could uh, talk more on, on the experience as, as the model. Okay. My body is a museum. When we were told that we must go do this, in my head, I've imagined myself as a museum, like my body as a museum. And it was all about doing yoga in the most uncomfortable spaces where people cannot think of yoga being done in that space. Spaces that are noisy, that are just messed up. And it hadn't been an easy journey, I must say, because uh, sometimes we get into like a space like he mentioned and people don't see him. And I just get there, put the yoga mat down and lay. 
and some people go, oh, this one, oh, is she faint? Has she fainted? Oh, is she? What's going on? What's wrong with this one? Is she crazy? You know, so it was very thought provoking. And then, well, people always have comments. And then, when I started, those comments wouldn't bother me because I tap into my world. Like I just look at myself like, oh, I'm a Muslim, and y'all are just audiences. So when we started, we were in the Louis Botha Riyadaya corridor, and we were actually in the middle of the the road, like the traffic road. And then how people reacted to that, like people in the taxis would just look out the window like, oh, what are they doing? And, you know, it wasn't that much uncomfortable for me. It was actually fun doing that, uh, taking people across the street, passing by with me, and I was like, oh. Some people obviously know it's yoga, some probably don't know. And then uh, we were in Nordkrasek in um, one of the Dream Come True murals, that's what I call them, because when we had the workshop, they were not real, they were not true. Z was just taking photos, people were just creating. And this time around, these same murals that people were creating, um, that Z was taking photos of, were in the walls, you know, like, it was real. So then we took photos there, and then it wasn't that much uncomfortable still there, because I know a few people, and it's not my space, but I've made that space my home somehow. The second time we did the shoot, we were in Alex by the taxi rank. So what happened is Z took an aerial shot from the top and I was at the bottom. Well, that's just a whole lot of traffic, people passing by uh, in different directions, others going east, others going west. There's a market there. So I just came there and this is like I was in a pathway, literally. And I just got there, put on my mat with Z's cousin standing there and people were asking, what is you doing? And some were like, are you guys taking a movie? Because some of the market guys, like they saw Z because I was communicating with him up there. Like, um, is this symmetrical? Is this how, where I should stand? Am I correct? You know, so they could see him and they asked the cousin, are you guys doing a film? And the, the cousin was like, no, we're doing a shoot. And then some people who were just passing by, buying, you know, taking a driving, they were like, what's going on? That's, they were very surprised and very curious. So I just got there, put on my yoga mat and I laid down and Z was taking photos. And then suddenly the place was packed. People were like literally watching me. So there was like a public performance that happened unexpectedly or I don't know if I, I should say expected because it's in the township. So when I opened my eyes, there were just a whole lot of people and I didn't know if I should say thank you, thank you or bow my head. And they also didn't know if they should come to me and hug me and go, oh, or ask me, what are you doing? And you know, so it was very awkward. It was very uncomfortable. I was a celebrity for the day. Okay, and then after that, we went to the Riavaya Corridor in Empire Park. And when we got there, we asked the securities if we could do the shoot in the in the station. Z took a lot of um. Well, my my favorite photos in that series were the ones where I was in motion. I remember the bus driver going, "What are you doing?" Because I was in the that there's this other step where they go mind the step, and I think people only get to step there when they have to get inside the bus or outside the bus. 
you can't just be there if the bus is just passing because it's a bit risky. But I was there and it was fun. Like I had an adrenaline rush. And Z was just taking photos and people were passing by, others were passing kisses. And I was just like receiving, receiving. It was usually scorching. Honestly, I don't function well when the sun is burning, but I was doing well because I was just hungry for this. And so a lot of photos, they were emotional and a whole lot of color coordination because I was in green, my hair green and my attire green. And I was wearing the Chitsonga cloth. They call it Mchini. Uh, but there was two, there was a symbolism of yoga in uh, African spaces, African dominated spaces, because in African dominated spaces, there are a lot of people are ignorant. They think certain things are meant for certain people. You know, like you, you need to be in a certain way to do certain things or to speak in a certain way, to think in a certain way. The way we'd uh, come up with the locations as far as uh, the, the, the project with Montana is we would look at one would be traffic, okay? Because basically we're trying to find out what would intimidate, whether it's intimidating Mandala herself or myself. Okay, so what what feels unsafe? What spaces, what's going on that feels unsafe, you know, and where can we impose ourselves in an unsafe play, uh, space and, and, and get those shots? So we would look at traffic as one of them, because obviously it's the Louis Porter Empire and Perth. And uh, a human traffic was another element we'd look at, okay? And another thing would be just um, things around the environment. Are we, are we seeing broken bottles, you know? Are we seeing graffiti? Are they, you know, gang signs somewhere? You know what I mean? Are they um, destitute or homeless people there? So that those were the elements that would help us sort of uh, determine our locations as we were thinking about where do we actually go and capture this stuff and where do we actually go impose ourselves in this environment so much that you can feel that you are not safe. We, the whole element of her not feeling safe was important because um, it, ha it, it wasn't supposed to be something where it looked unsafe, but she, I, I, I had to get the feeling, even myself as a photographer, that it's a bit not. And as far as finding locations, that's how we actually think about taking photos. The first series are, are very specific, the middle of the, the road or the sides of the road and all that kind of stuff. And they're quite specifically yoga positions and yoga poses. Yeah. But as the project moves on, actually what I start to see, which is quite fascinating, and this is where I think Mantala's uh, inner, inner self starts coming out, where she has an intrinsic sense of humor and irony. That starts to translate a little bit when, the, when this... The, the, the sites that you're starting to choose are actually quite quite intimate as opposed to like a spectacle where Mantala is on the, on the ground and is in a taxi rank and everyone's looking and it's a high angle shot. The shots that progress later is she's situated in and amongst people around her. The poses are less overtly yoga poses and more about her body doing things that are not normal or wouldn't be a normal type of practice in that space. So, and the pictures are captured in a very intimate way. I'd like to, I'd like you, Mantala, to just reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, so after the aerial shots and all of that, when we came back, after we got a brief from you, we, I actually thought of how fascinating it would be to go more risky. And more risky places are like shabins and you know, stuff like that. So we, 
would go ask for like Shabin bosses, whatever, to take shots there and then I'd be like on top of the table just doing yoga, stretching there, would go to like historical places and do like some so I was not at that time I wasn't really embodying a woman's uh, body as a museum, but I'd also I'd just be like I, I actually looked at myself as a being more than a gender. I don't know if I'm making sense. Just be, and then that would actually that would also show. And then our theme was survival. You know, more of like pushing, pulling, more of like screaming, more of like needing to escape or to be alive you know um but not really being obvious about it yeah and then it got to a point where i started getting more adventurous like i had to <laughs> i remember one time i had i almost fell like i kept surprising myself in these and it was also oh i kept surprising myself because it always felt like two worlds like z the photographer's world and my world as a model because it's like my body feels certain things somehow somewhere i'd rather be doing certain things and z sees the photo um in his eye so for example i'd probably rather just lay down and z sees the photo in this uh angle and he'd be like no stand up i want to stand in asana it would look dope when i'm standing asana the balance of um the, my reality and uh, the reality of the camera was very was a controversy. And then on the climbing, surviving type, surviving part, it was really, really real for me, and it was raw. It was very authentic to a point where our last shoot, like I was really angry because I got people like some guys commenting stuff like I wish I could rape you type of thing and then I'd, I'd ask myself like how do men feel when they see a woman and they objectify her and they even they are not even afraid to say I wish I could rape you or oh if I could rape you so my body is a museum also refers to how people perceive things or objects in a museum when they tap in to the museum you know, it's like getting into the gallery and looking at certain things in different perception or like thinking different or feeling different about those things and reacting different about those things. Yeah, and then also like coming back to how uh, religion would say my body is a temple, but also like, I don't know how to explain it. So it's, it's like a wall, it's like a, an internal and external wall because the more I get uncomfortable, the more I want to be uncomfortable. And the more I want to be uncomfortable, the more I realize that the importance of being comfortable. So this is how I felt, right? I felt like, so where I was standing, I was at the top. And this is what uh, Stephen would call surveillance. So I could see and I could hear things that Z and the cousin bodyguard would not see or hear because I was at the top, the very top. So Z was obviously focusing on the photos, taking photos as a photographer, and I was focusing on, um, you know, posing as a model. And then when these guys were saying these things, I was the one who was seeing them. I was the one who could hear them. I was the one who was feeling these things. So it, it was like, I'm in my world. 
And at that time, I was so scared of my life that I did not even want to expose my green hair because I'm the one who's passing there when I'm going to work, you know, on my way to the taxi rent to catch taxis. I'm the one who is feeling these things. I'm, the, I'm a woman, you know, like, if I am to tell them, they wouldn't understand how it feels like to be me. They would have maybe tried to protect me, but maybe their way of protecting me would have made things worse for me, in a way. And I didn't even have the strength to shout or to scream or to go, hey Z, these guys are saying these things about me and this is how I feel about it. So I just went, I want to leave now. I was so angry and Z was like, no, but like, let's take another photo. This would look really dope. And I was like, no, I am leaving right now. And we left. I didn't tell him what is happening, why I wanted to leave, how come I never wanted to like take all those photos and stuff like that. I just left. And I kept on tapping in and out of that uncomfortable feeling of how am I going to survive this? How do I move on from this? How do I carry on? How do I face the world? You know, how do I face that specific space that is so close to me because it's not far from home? And, you know, everybody knows some, everybody. If, you, if you're living in a, in a township or in a rural area, your cousin is probably my former classmate or something like that. So sometimes you don't know who knows you. And it's like, even when you are in your space, you still have, I, I had sort of paranoia of like, well, what if those people know me and, you know, stuff like that. So I remember um, the following day, I didn't really want to go out. And even, even though I went out, I didn't really want to expose my green hair because, I mean, I think it's what makes me stand out, except my English nose. That after that, coming here, and yeah, after that, after being vulnerable, after feeling like I can't, I don't know how I'm going to survive this, after feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm in such danger, um, after feeling so vulnerable, né, um, I felt powerful, you know, like coming here, waking up in the morning on a Monday, coming here made me feel like they have nothing on me. If they try me, <laughs> they don't know what's going to come into them. Like I can heal them on behalf of all these other girls that they have insulted, offended, and probably raped if they did, or raped, like, yeah. So I was, I was, I just felt powerful. So this has been a journey that had made me weak and strong. Like I felt, I found my, my strength in my weakness, in a way. It had made me feel like I'm a superhero. Like my body is a museum that, uh, that tells stories, or there is a voice, in, on behalf of other women, there is a voice that basically does not have a tone or a harmony, but it's a voice, it out, it's out there, it stands out, you know, um, it says things that, that, that don't really need to be said, but that needs to be done. It had been a very dangerous journey, but a very beautiful one as well. Like. Tusi and Sparks, you've been working on a, on a project for the exhibition Urban Chemistry Creative Placemaking in Johannesburg. It falls under the title Escaleni. What does Escaleni mean? What language are you speaking and what is this project about for you? Um, first and foremost, I'm going to start with Escaleni. Escaleni is the word derived from a Zulu language. 
it basically says within the space or in the space. So what we're trying to do in this project is we're trying to put sparks in spaces whereby whether the, the background, the backdrop, whatever is complementing the person that he is. But we, we, we try so hard to find those spaces uh, in random spaces along this border as we think can make sparks look as perfectly as we want it to be. I think another, perhaps one of the reasons for this project taking place is that I think probably meeting Sparks way before we ever met yourself, three or four years prior, um, Sparks was already um, collaborating with us on his filmmaking projects and is a self-taught editor and self-taught cinematographer and has an instinctive uh, style and ability of kind of creating stories about the, the neighborhood he, he lives and works in called Jeffystown, which is near to Maboneng in, in central Johannesburg. And one of the things that always inspired me about Sparks is that he was very mindful of, of how he presents himself. And in a way, Escaleni has also been about an, an attitude, an attitude towards the street, an attitude towards urban style, dare I say fashion. So one, one of the things I love about your photo shoot with Tusi is very specific garments are used in a, in a particular way to make us see the environment in a particular way and see you. So the use of the yellow raincoat in relation to signage in the street, you're wearing yellow socks, there are other things that are going on in the photographs. Tell us why you're choosing those kinds of garments to, to reflect on the street. It's because uh, our project is based on dance and fashion. I'm wearing that uh, yellow raincoat uh, to present or the mind guys they were used to to wear that uniform or work things to after that they, they were using the campus as a, a sound or a drums and then the dance using the foods and even a spazula is from on the culture of mind. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why pictures you're you making in, in a lot of the pictures you're using available signage in the area where people are saying um, scrap for gold and, and you so you've got all of these sort of people selling gold yes. or exchanging for gold on the street so what is this is this the new is this the last layer of mining taking place in Johannesburg yes. so with us using uh, bright colors like yellow it's like it's an attitude like escalade, when you say escalade, you don't just say escalade, you say it with pride, with style, certain style, like escalade, as, um, like it's, it's like saying yo, you know, you don't just say yo, it's like yo, what you doing there, you know, so we're trying to say yo, we are here, we are present, you know, um, we are present in the sense that we want to use color that is so bright, so much that you can like, in the blink of a second, you can say, hey, now I'm also you know. So that's why in most of our pictures, we're trying to complement colors that we have along the corridor with whatever the, the costume that we, we use. Well, I also think it's interesting because it's, it's um, that approach to creating uh, a, a special subject, a, a person, in the, in the landscape where that landscape is moving and changing all the time and has done for, for over 100 years. Um, to then create a frozen moment both in the photograph but also in the making of the photograph. It's almost like a little performance piece that typically 
people along the Louis Boiter corridor would not be familiar with seeing people suddenly doing a fashion show or whatever, which, which is what I think is important about this exhibition, that you, as Joe Burgers, who have a whole range of different cultural references on how the city works and operates, in the moments that you're taking the pictures, you're also inserting a visual memory to the passers-by. And I think that's, I feel like that is something that is, is close to what we're trying to do with the public art component or the placemaking through art component, that how can you work with iconography, with visual references, things that come from people's collective memory and so forth, so that we can start looking at spaces differently. So I think that's a very important part about Escalene from my, from my pers personal point of view. Sparks, what has this journey meant for you? Not necessarily Escalene, but what's it been like um, interacting with visual artists, looking at the process of how people make their places through creativity? What's, what, what, what does it do for you? What does it mean for you? I can say it means a lot. Um, um, since that we, uh, we started to shoot, also, I'm also learning um, and uh, I, I usually like uh, using camera, not to be in front of camera. So I, I, I know to see what is looking for when he's taking pictures and I think we're on the same page, you know what I mean? And yeah, and we try to because uh, in the first uh, the first short shoot uh, he go out to look some locations and uh, we, I was also know the lowest border since last year so the most of the the location that the one that he picked uh, I know them so we were sharing the same ideas and we never like meet some any trouble. Oh, beside of the guy, like he, he asked about what we what we do in his father's place, and uh, and we're not allowed to take pictures before we talk to him. And then yeah, we move on. I know Louis brother, but I don't know. Uh, I never like walk until Alex. Uh, but the location that we picked, we never pass McDonald. Yeah. We use the this one only because we're looking for some shops, uh, tags, and yeah, we're not we're not taking uh, graffiti. And Tusi, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, yes, you're a young photographer. You're learning all the time. You guys are working together as as a team a lot. Other than just working on the Escalani project, what's where's your mind going in terms of? what it is to be working with a camera in these different neighborhoods. What's the experience for you as, uh, as you, as you have a special tool in your hand and it, uh, it has power and it can do things, right? What does that mean for you? What does it mean to be a photographer? Is this something you're interested in for the future? Um, it's, I would say it's an amazing journey because um, professionally I'm a performing artist. So I was studying um, TV and um, um, and, 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 and performance art uh, thing in studies. So I've never um, imagined myself um, behind the camera. I've always wanted to be 
in front of the camera expressing myself and whatnot. So along the way, I, 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 I find myself in this domain and it's very new to me. Um, at first, I, I thought I could do it, you know, I thought I could be a photographer, anyone can be a photographer. But there's like you, you, you when when you get into that space of 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 having a camera in your hand, you start to realize how much of a pressure you are in and how much of of of, of work you should bring out there, you know, because it's not about taking photos. It's also about being aware of the spaces that you visit, you know. You 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 have to be able to read um the state the emotion that is in the space where people are feeling okay you know, you know it, it's also taught me how to how to communicate with people because I'm, I feel like and I've always thought I'm not a very good communicator you know I, I just want to be in the space and do what I'm being told just like a robot you know I don't want people to come to me and say hey Tusi what's up what's you know it's, it's one thing I was telling Z that you Z are amazing because he's been there he's a guru that's why I, I call him Snap Lord because when he gets into the space, you know, on my first time meeting Z and, and working with Z in one room, you know, everybody knows Z. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, until I find out that it's about communicating more than just taking a picture because you need to, you need to be in a relationship or in, in, in something emotional with the person that you're taking a photo of. You want to, to feel the existence of something that you are about to create before you even create it. So I was like, it's, it's amazing. And he was, he's always teaching me that you need to be, you know, be yourself, do this. And, and now I'm picking up, you know, I can be able to just, you know, go to North Kazakh and like everybody, hey, to see how's it, you know, like it feels cool, you know. And um, it taught me a lot about not only about taking photos, about also being able to, to read the emotion, you know, to, to understand when people are not feeling good, to understand when to say hi, to understand when to just shut your mouth, to understand how to get into the space and own it. Because at the first time I was like, you know, I was, I was afraid, should I take a picture of that, you know? And it taught me how to not to focus on something that you've been given a mandate of, or maybe an instruction of doing. It also teaches you to look around the space, find something like, there are many things that you can take on the space than to take what you've been sent to go and take, you know? So I was like, it's, it's, it's very amazing and personally, I would like to become one of the most. And especially with this project, most photographers, like, I want to do the most because with this project that you are in now, it's calling, it teaches you to, to wake up. Because, like, at first I felt like uh, it's fashion intense, so let's go and just shoot, you know. But as we go, more things are being revealed. It's like a book, it has many pages. When you think you are done, you are about to start, you know. You, 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 you tend, to, um, you tend to, to think of it as, as someone like in a spiritual way. You imagine yourself like it's, it's the world with all the chaos and as a photographer you have to come out and view it from a, um, a bird's eye like, and see how people are sleeping on it. Because when we're given um, a content, fashion and dance, to me it, was, it came to me like it's simple. Just go and shoot sparks, wearing nice and blah, blah, blah. It's not about that. It's about shouting because fashion, I feel like fashion and culture and all those things are about, it's about saying, hey, I'm here, but not saying it in words, in the way you are, the way you are dressed. Um, we have the first leg, second leg, third leg, fourth leg. On our, on our thing, third leg, I was like, um, it's not about just posing, you know, it's about saying, hey, I'm here. 
you are wearing nice, but I'm nicer than you. That's why we, we, we chose these uh, yellow colors. And, and, and some I went even too deep and became cultural about it because I was trying to say fashion is an identity. It's also a culture which wants to scream loud and says, hey, I'm here, I'm existing and whatnot. And on our, on our first shoot, we started by interviewing people and asking them what is fashion. And, it's, and some don't even know what fashion is. They're just following trends. And I find out that along the along the way, I can like manipulate it, you know, deviate from the trend, and and and, and do something, you know. You find Sparks wearing a raincoat, and someone will be like, "Is that fashionable?" Yes, it is, because you find we have an artist, a Rikirikina, a hip hop artist. He like he likes to turn something that you would like, what the hell is that, and turn it to something amazing. And all of a sudden, you walk in Bramfontein. Every student are wearing the same thing that Rikirik is wearing, you know. It, it's, we're trying to do the same thing, trying to develop the same notion. So it's, it has been amazing and I would really like to learn more. And in fact, I'm learning more, you know, about this uh, domain called photography. I'd like to, I'd like to reflect on Eswini Lam. Uh, did I pronounce it co- yeah. correctly, huh? Yeah, Eswini Lam, no? In my world, yeah. In my world, Senzo, please, um, please tell us a little bit more about what you're, what you're researching with this project. Okay, basically, my project is about uh, Tawo Mukwena. Um, he has built uh, like, uh, amazingly. Like, he has built his world in the corridor, uh, Louis Water Corridor. Uh, when you when you pass as a, as a, as a, as a human being, you wouldn't tell whether uh, this guy is a uh, like it's a homeless guy who's living there or what but when you approach him you will find out that this guy he's just he's not just a homeless but he's just something else because he has created his own world where he will uh, collect uh, any unused uh, things it could be plastic bottles uh, wooden stuff and he would actually bring those into life he's homeless but then uh, he's kind of different from the other guys uh, what, I, what, what I've realized when, when I was uh, actually talking with him because he said that uh, he believed that uh, uh, he doesn't like uh, to go around like picking uh, food on the dustbin and stuff but he would actually have an exchange with someone like if he asks ask for money for you or for food he would like to make something for you with those things that he collects like it could be a wire, wire car, uh, a wooden uh, gun He's such an uh, amazing guy. Yeah, I'm still I'm I'm, I'm still uh, looking forward to working with him so far. And another thing what that was interesting for us as a team, he has created uh, like uh, he, he has a bed uh, facing this side. Then he has uh, three mirrors. There is a, a way like the corridor like uh, taxis and people are passing that. So in those mirrors, he can see like people are coming that side while he's sleeping on the bed. So that that thing is something that uh, like it's amazing. I couldn't think like someone like him would create such a thing. To the average Joe Burger going past his location where he's planted himself on the sidewalk, um, uh, which he's now curating, like he's landscaping the place, he's he's constantly adding and, and um, enlivening the place with still life scenes that he's creating, recycling materials and so forth. 
Um, he's, he's more than tolerated. I mean, he hasn't been, he's not perceived as a homeless person by city officials and so forth. He's, they're allowing him to occupy the space. Can you explain a little bit more about how long he's been there, what his relationship is to the buildings around him, how people perceive him, etc.? So, uh, he first started living there in 2016, but along the way, he usually go to Eastern Cape to visit his family. So, the relationship that he has with the people around, surrounding them, is that uh, they like him because he cleans the place, uh, he, he plants, like he has uh, some tomatoes and stuff there. Uh, he also took like uh, water stuff to create uh, a way to, to enter his yard, like uh, so that uh, when it's raining, cannot be like, uh, you know, when it's mud and stuff. So basically, the people who are passing there, the security guards, the TC driver, like they have a good relationship with him because He's such a nice guy. He actually like make sure that the place is clean and stuff. And he will uh, usually like volunteer because behind him there is a, a hospital there. So those guys they usually work close with him because he will volunteer to do some of the things for them in exchange for. So he has created a good relationship with the people around him. And then just a last question for now. One of your images that I'm looking at shows he's standing in front of a, a, a tree branch and he's got his hands gestured outwards as if he's praying or, or reflecting on that site. That seems like quite a spiritual thing that he's doing. Um, what's happening in that photograph? So he's uh, very like spiritual. He's uh, very like he believes in God and, and ancestors and more than anything. So in that picture, he has that cross. Uh, there is a message there saying that uh, the way forward and the way back is only God. So he is a very uh, good believer in terms of uh, God and ancestors because there is the another reason he's going to. Visit home. He's saying that uh, his ancestors uh, have been visiting him uh, on his sleep, telling him, telling him that he needs to go home like as soon as possible. He's a fellow ex-convict. Uh, ex uh, he was arrested uh, for murder. He was sentenced uh, for twenty years, but he did eleven years. So when he came out of jail, he that's where he went uh, to live with his, with his mom. Uh, in Eastern Cape, but his mom died. That's when he came to the spot when his mom died. So he felt like he has nothing left. He has, he has no one because the family was fighting over the house and stuff. But before he used to, because he was a criminal at that time, he used to play around uh, drugs and stuff. He had he had a background of uh, drugs. He came to live there in the in the spot. As a, as a homeless, because uh, he was hard, heartbroken by his mother and dad. So the fact that uh, he can build a life for himself in that particular place by creating all the art objects that uh, he's been doing and exchanging them to people in terms of like uh, living a life and stuff. For him, it's not nice to live there, but he has no choice because. In the Eastern Cape, when you are homeless and stuff, 
it's very hard like to get that peace that he's getting this side because in this case like he even mentioned something that uh it's even it's even hard like to even get uh, a children but in this side like it's easy for him like he can make ways besides like uh robbing people and stuff uh there is another thing uh he has uh cancer like he has uh move on to the life of uh robbing people and stuff so most of his his friends had died and had died in front of him. Uh, he even mentioned uh, the last one that made me realize that uh, this life is not good. Uh, his friend uh, was caught by the community members and they chopped his body into pieces. So that's when he decided like it's, it's, it's either me or or this life. So he chose this life for for him and to put it in terms of like. God would decide like what's happening to me like tomorrow. He also said that uh, every day when he wakes up, like it doesn't matter like what will happen. He just like live his life according to he just go goes with the rain. Can you tell us a little bit about the neighborhood around him? So he's staying on the Louis Water corridor and he's living next to the hospital, but in front of him is a very famous neighborhood of Johannesburg. So yeah, yeah, he's uh, the, he's living uh, close to Hillbrook and stuff. The the situation around around him, the, he's saying that it's much safer for him that that side. But when he tries to go upper, it's more dangerous, especially at night. So he makes sure that uh, at five he's on the other side of the road because yeah, security passing by and uh, taxis or or like. That place is much safer. Even the Nyaupe guys, those who like usually rob people and stuff, they don't use that uh, that that road. They use the other road, so it's much safer for him. Who are the Nyaupe guys? What is Nyaupe? Nyaupe, uh, Nyaupe guys. Uh, it's a uh, Nyaupe is a drug. It's a famous drug like uh, that most youth of South Africa is using. Tell us a little bit about Cabo's gang history. So he was the member of, of a very famous gang. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so since he was arrested uh, for like 20 years, uh, that's a long sentence. In the prison, like there was, in South Africa, there is a group of gangs. It's the 26, uh, 28, and the big five. And what I know about the 26 and the 20, 28, the 26 are uh, those who are doing uh, rape and murder and stuff, and the 28 uh, they are more of those who are stealing and stuff. So Chawa is a 26, and he has a, uh, he represents 26 years of all those tattoos and stuff. He's been put on the court of 26, like he has been trained there. He can tell you uh, almost everything about the, the life of the 26, like he told you, like how they live in prison and stuff. Another thing he told me that like uh, he experienced a lot of trauma while he was arrested. Like uh, in, in in jail, like uh, he said, like people like they died like uh, like animals, like and they and, and they would just carry on as if nothing had happened. Even if uh, when he tells me the story, like he actually cries because he said that uh, it has uh, changed. His life because some of the things he can't get it, get it out of his mind because they were just terrible things that no human being is supposed to see. So he 
what I find quite incredible, and I don't know if he's um, said more about it, but what you described, the way that he exchanges with people, that he will make something and he will trade it with somebody. So just, what does he say about that? For, for him, because uh, he, didn't, he didn't choose uh, this, this life, uh, he decided to, to come back to come back to join him. To join his back because of the product that it would be very much easy for him because he is living on a street. For him to go around like uh, getting stuff on the beam, it's not for him. To because he is very like talented, like he's a good sketcher, he writes, like he actually has a, he has write a, a biography of himself like, in terms of like who are his friends when he grew up. Like, where the people were arrested with like he's just like his mind is it's more like like he's an artist so he was lucky to work for a company like they were making uh, like tables and stuff so he's a, a handed make like a, a type of person so he decided that okay i i know how to make stuff with my hands and stuff so for me to survive i'll collect uh, do the recycling and stuff like and try to make something out of nothing in exchange uh, for food and money to people. So another thing that was interesting is uh, he actually make uh, things for because there are school children passing by there, so he just gives them for free. He's just an amazing guy who likes to interact with people. So for him, it's not like that. I'll do this for you in exchange of his offering what he can offer. Like for 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 the very uh, same example uh, that you are offering him something, but he's not expecting anything. But it should be like something that is coming from from your heart. Hence, I'm saying uh, he's a very strong believer. Like he, he takes everything that uh, God will like, make away. Like so, he doesn't just uh, like negotiate uh, in terms of okay, see, I'll make this for you and you'll give me this certain money. So he just make things because uh, like he likes he likes he likes to give. He was that type of person before like his life was like this. Like he, he likes to give. Last question. Uh, as a as a young filmmaker, what has it meant to you? For the project, but also to meet this person, and how do you how do you think about it as a as a story, in relation to Joburg, in relation to your own life? What are you learning from from meeting this person? Okay, uh, for me, like when I started doing this project, because I have a strong background in terms of like documentary and stuff, I don't have a background uh, in terms of photography and yeah, so on. So when we started doing this project. Uh, for me, when we went there, obviously it was like to, to capture certain type of like uh, beautiful picture, pictures and stuff. But when I start to interview the guy, I could tell that uh, there is more like story about this guy. Like I even told the guy that uh, I did a, a certain interview. Uh, I still want to create a script on that interview because his life is just like he has a prison life, uh, homeless artist at the same time so it's just like random but i need to get a certain angle on how i will just tell the story of his life 
so far I've started with the with the interview and stuff. Yeah, it's coming okay. I still going to go there and like and try to get more and get more because some of the things like he doesn't tell me the way like I want I want him to like he'll be telling me his life of prison. Like he he's there and there and there and there. I just want him like but for me to get everything I need to meet him like almost it will be, it can be, I can't expect uh, him to tell me his story like uh, in a day. Like, I need to build a relationship with him like three months from now. So I just need to, to live with him every day. So yeah, he'll be leaving to stay back on the 1st of April and he'll come back. So I'll just continue. He actually gets a pension fund, which is almost close to 2,000 rand. So what I thought in my mind, there are places around Tobe where you can just get a shed and like sit and stay for free or get and rent one hundred and fifty. So for me, yeah, he chose to stay here because he feels like uh, that's that's his world. That's that's where he can like operate. But in terms of like, if you you were to go and live anywhere. Couldn't like survive. So that's the point. He does have some income, yeah, and that income gives him enough uh, security to be able to live on the streets, okay. but in a way that he constructs his environment and his world around him to be a functional design space. So what what urban chemistry about is about is is an opportunity that's presented itself through David Cripp projects. He was interested in emerging photography voices as well as nurturing and developing young artists wherever um, the workshop and the galleries can do so. So I think that um, when I shared the work of what the documentary crew does, you guys in this room and the facilitators and creatives do uh, for the Art My Josie project for the city of Johannesburg and so forth, and when I shared that with David Critt, he, he was very inspired by the by the connections that are being made through the creative process, but it's really about people. It's about people, it's about telling stories, it's about new ways of seeing what we see on a daily basis but take for granted. The moment you put someone in a red coat in, the, in this place suddenly, or equally someone who's performing yoga with a bright dyed green hair, tomorrow must cover up because it's set up a whole other set of associations and time. this is very powerful and and um, anyway so so I think David David then was very quick to say that when I'm in New York on this residency can't we create something special in New York and you know it's very interesting how things work uh, that it's a question of not all it's 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 the power of content in relation to the right timing and suddenly we can make things happen but what is very precise and specific about today's conversation is that not only you, you you were originally tasked and continue to be tasked to document the artworks process and how this contributes to placemaking in the city of Johannesburg along the transit-oriented corridors. So this is what you contracted to do on a daily basis. And of course urban chemistry was about trying to understand what it is that you feel, what it is that you see, and in the context of Art My Josie and that very specific geography that we're working on, how can we 
start to see it in terms of your personal lives. So fashion and dance doesn't come about because, yes, I, I said, how about doing a photo, photo fashion shoot type of thing, but it was because the, my first impression of Sparks Napoli was this amazing Pantula dancer who I saw performing and who also presented himself in a very street-wise kind of way, an elegance, a beauty, a manhood, a quietness, and, 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 and visually that's very powerful to people who are visual people. To people who, don't who take the visual for granted, they would also see that style, that presentation, that presence, because it's different. You don't see it every single day. So there's something special in each and every one of you as in terms of what your eyes do and see. And then what I think what has been very profound about this conversation is that what's come out is it's very much about the body. The body and how the body is a medium for accessing society that then starts to help us understand some of our own ideas about what we're doing, how we want to evolve as performers, as artists, as photographers. And I think, um, Senzo, you really hit the nail on the head with what you're trying to do in terms of making a film about um, Tabo Mokwena from the perspective that there are many lives that he has lived. He, he was a young man. I would, be lo I would love to know what life he lived when he was a young man in, in, in the Eastern Cape. Of course, he got into the world of gangsterism and became a, a, a 26 in prison and so forth. And these gangs are over 100 years old. So there's a whole tradition around that and tattooing and all of that is, is very much a part of the culture. And we've seen a lot of that in contemporary photography uh, coming out of South Africa, documenting the gangs. But you also spoke about homelessness. And then in some ways he chooses to be homeless. Yeah. And his presence is not about not having a roof over his head. He is creating a place. And he's doing that through his bartering, his transactions, his gestures to the children, his recycling and giving things, because that's perhaps how he feels real and part of the creation of something special. And then you called him an artist. And I think that this is, in a way, for me, um, nailing the project, so to speak, from the perspective that to call someone an artist or to say that you are an artist is a bold thing, right? Because that means, it inevitably means we are the outsiders as artists, because not everybody, not most people in society don't identify with that definition or title, and therefore we must be doing something special. So there are so many ways in which his story gives us multiple perspectives on, he's not homeless, he's chosen a particular situation, which and I'm, I mean, I may be way out of line in what I'm saying here, but he's chosen his circumstances because he, perhaps he feels more empowered in that way and chooses not to go and get a job in a typical way and then afford an apartment or a shack in the township. But this seems like self-determination in a particular way. Therefore, his social practice, his creativity, his woodworking experience and knowledge seems to be all part and parcel of the genetics of this place that he's created that looks like a mess but actually has a lot of logic and order to it. And I think, in a funny sort of way, when we look at social housing and we look at housing for the poor and we look at housing that is affordable, etc., etc., we don't stop often enough to talk to the people about the roof they would like on their head, over their head, and how 
the relationship between the street, buildings, cultural practices, our sense of self-dignity and so on, is integral to the way that we design cities. And in this project, in urban chemistry and in the Aunt My Josie project, we have tried to ask the question about who are we? <laughs> what is this? Where are we? We are the visitors because we don't live in a lot of these neighborhoods. We are visitors because the city of Johannesburg encourages us to be there to do this kind of work. So I, I just, you know, just generally to you guys as our wonderful crew, I just want to say thanks for your attention. You know, this is part of the program, right? This is reflecting critically or emotionally or even at a primary level on our work is a key part of how we grow as artists. So these sessions, this session for me has been incredibly powerful because one, we've had to do it as part of our job because making exhibitions in New York or anywhere else is a real thing, a very, very real thing. And we have the commitment and support of David Crick Projects, which is remarkable and special. And they have a passion for what we are doing and they need to share that with the world. And so this is all part of our practice. We may sit behind the lens a lot of the time, but actually we're interlocutors. We are people that sit between meaning, and through us we translate the world. Thank you for listening, and to find out more about the exhibition, please follow the link in the description. Don't forget to follow and like the podcasts. This way, more people will be able to find us and learn more about art in South Africa and Johannesburg. Mm -hmm.